Hello, welcome everyone. This now we have a in a break from our usual weekly podcast. We have a very special interview with a with a very exciting guest. He is a journalist and author, most recently of the book One Step from Glory, um, and he is co-chair of the Tottenham Hotspur Supporters Trust. So, starting with the book, which I have right here with me, very good read by the way. Very, really enjoyed it. Um, why did you decide to write this book about Tottenham Hotspur's run to the Champions League final? Uh, it was an idea I wrote with a guy called uh, Alex Finn, who's uh, probably quite well known to a lot of people who sort of interested in either Tottenham or Arsenal. He's followed both clubs for, for quite a few years and uh, was an advisor to to both clubs uh, on marketing and an advisor to to the FA when the Premier League was first set up. Um, and um, we've been thinking about writing a book about uh, Pochettino's influence on Spurs and what he'd done uh, for the club for a while. Um Ralph's uncle was, uh, Alex's uncle was a guy called Ralph L. Finn, who wrote a book called Spurs Supreme in 1962 after Spurs won the double. Uh, and it was sort of a game by game account of that season and about, you know, what it meant to the history of the club and what, what its effect was on, or, you know, on kind of football history generally. And so Alex wanted to kind of do a bit of a tribute to his uncle uh, and kind of follow the format. And we looked at, we, we, we'd both talked for a few years, we'd known each other for a while. Uh, about writing a book about what Pochettino had done for Spurs. Uh, and I think part of that story, and I think part of the reason why a lot of Spurs fans really love uh, the team that's been built, is that it's a team that has been coached and it's been built and it hasn't just been bought. And I know there's lots of debates about, you know, should we or could we have spent more money at different stages as well. Um, but I think that's what makes a team special, that if you look at the history of the Premier League, the clubs that are successful are the clubs that pay the biggest wages and, and spend the most money on transfer fees. And Spurs break the mould. You know, strictly speaking, we shouldn't be in the top four. Uh, and we certainly shouldn't have got to the Champions League final last year as well. And I think when that run started going, we started talking to each other and saying, maybe now is the time to write this book, to write the story of what Europe means to Tottenham Hotspur Football Club and its fans. Um, and focusing on this run, let's try and look at what Pochettino has done for the team. You know, why it's been built, how it's how it's become the team that it is. Uh and obviously, you know, the decision was taken to write the book before we knew if we'd get to the final and before we knew if we'd, if we'd win. Um, but, you know, that that was the general idea of the, of the book as well. It was something that we'd been thinking about doing for a while. We wanted to tell the story of that team. Uh, and I think the, the Champions League run gave us something to hook it on, if you like. I think much of the reaction from, from Tottenham fans, I think, was, has been mostly positive. I and mean, from me personally, I mean, I know I've read the book, really, really enjoyed it. But there was some backlash from opposition fans who decide to make, make a joke out of it or, or saying that Spurs are celebrating failure. Um, what do you make of that? And, and what do you make of the idea that it, it, it represents Spurs as a club, the idea that of, of celebrating failure as well? Um, I think that you're always going to get banter in football, aren't you? And I mean, it's one of those horrible words which, which kind of is supposed to excuse a lot of things. And I think where all this started was that when the book came out on Amazon, um, you know, we know that uh, Arsenal support have got a very strong social media presence and they picked up on it and for, for banter reasons started doing some hilarious kind of faux reviews about, you know, it's a book celebrating failure and whatever. And I think a lot of it goes back to there was a stage uh, in the early 2000s, I think, when we'd, we'd beaten them in, a, in a, a, a semi-final and the club, I think, slightly over-marketed a DVD that came out of that game. And so the joke was, you know, every time Spurs win something, they put a DVD out. And the, the, the irony of there was that in those days that all clubs put out DVDs of every game as well. So it wasn't a big deal. But these things kind of become embedded in folklore, don't they? Uh, and so it started off as banter from Arsenal fans. What was annoying about it was that that then takes the rating down on Amazon and people start believing 
what was said. And most of the comments were made by people that hadn't read the book and had got no intention of reading the book. And it's difficult as an author because you sound like you're a little bit kind of a, a bit of a diva. You're being a bit precious if you say, oh, look, you know, people have criticized my work, how dare they? But people can read the book and say it's complete rubbish or I really don't like the idea of the book. But read the book and see what it's about, first of all. And the annoying thing was when some Spurs fans started picking up on that and saying, oh, you've written a book about failure. And it isn't, it isn't a book about failure. It's a book about what's, what Europe means to Spurs over the history of the club and what's been done over the past five and a half years. I mean, one of the things I've said to people is that one of my favourite ever football books is a book called All Played Out by Pete Davis. And it's the story of England at Italia 90. Now, England didn't win that competition. Uh, and, you know, so it, a book doesn't have to be about winning. And I, I get I get the whole thing. You know, we'd all dearly love to win a trophy as well. But uh, and we did have the conversation. We said, you know, OK, once we got to the final, should we? We got the agreement from the publisher to write the book. Uh, we'd started putting things together. We'd started talking to some of the newspapers, whose match reports that we were going to use. And we said, you know what? There's still a, to- a story to tell, because what I said right at the start of the show Spurs, if you look at the way modern football works and the way that money goes with success, Spurs shouldn't have been in that Champions League final. And the fact that we got there was a fantastic achievement. You know, did I want us to win? I wanted that more than anything, I think, as every Spurs fan did. And I also get that for some Spurs fans, it's a bit too raw that they don't want to look back at that. But I think you talk to, to the people that have read the book and you talk to fans that went to those games or watched the games, you know, it was a fantastic run. And I think there's also, it's a pity sometimes if we get to the stage where we can't enjoy anything unless it is just winning. Of course, that's important. But in the end, there are four competitions that you can win every year. So that means most fans are going to be disappointed. Uh, Would I have liked to have won something over the last five years? Of course I would. Uh, Have I enjoyed myself more than I have done for probably the 15 years before then? I think I probably have. I've seen some of the best football ever. And I I started watching this live in 1978. And it's been a fantastic ride. And why not celebrate that and give people credit for it? Um, do you think, though, that the accusation of, of a club celebrating failure it does actually land true of, of Spurs now maybe being content with top four rather than trying to push to the next level? Do you think that the accusation actually lands or is it just just banter and, and, and I don't know, arguments from, from opposition fans? Well, it's obviously landed with, with some people. I think some of it's banter from opposition fans. I mean, you know, people said to me, oh, you know, it's or some people have said, you know, it's emba- you've embarrassed the club and, you know, you've given people a chance to have a go at us. Well, I don't think me writing a book has given Arsenal fans permission to have a go at us. I think Arsenal fans are always going to have a go at Spurs. Just in the same way as we're always going to have a go at them. You know, that, that's part of the game. Uh, but I'll just say to people, read the book. You know, you might look at it and say, well, you know what? Actually, it wasn't worth writing it because you didn't win anything in the end. But, you know, do that from an informed point of view. Um, I, I don't think it is about celebrating failure at all. I think it's about celebrating the success uh, up to that stage. Um, are we happy with top four? I don't think any of us are, no. I don't think any professional footballer, I don't think any fan goes into any any competitive situation not wanting to win. But I think also you have to look at it relatively sometimes. Have we done better than we should have done over the past five years according to how modern football is supposed to work? Yes, we have. You know, Is that good enough? Are we satisfied with it? Of course not. And immediately we become satisfied with that. Then you know, there's not, if, you, if you watch a game and you don't want your team to win, or if you start a season and you don't think you can win a competition, then what's the point? You know, the point of the game is winning. Well, one of the things we discuss in the book is the old Danny Blanchflower quote, which people think has become a bit of a millstone, if you like, around our, our neck. But we said that people often sometimes willfully misinterpret that because he talked about winning with style. And everybody focuses on the style and they say, oh, Spurs are more interested in playing attractive football, but they don't mind if they don't win anything. And that actually wasn't what that quote was about. He said that the two things are important. 
There's no point having style unless you win, but there's no point winning unless you do it in style. And that's why I think, you know, most Spurs fans would say, actually, we're cut above everybody else because we've got those really high standards. And other fans will laugh and go, oh, you know, yeah, you think you're better than us or whatever. But that's what we love about our club and about our tradition and about our personality and character. So, um, you know, yeah, we'd, we'd stick by it. I think I very much share that your uh, your feelings about, about that. But um, your book that you mentioned was about was was more about the history of Tottenham and Europe. Um, and there was the quote which you which you mentioned was of, of Bill Nicholson that Tottenham without without Europe are nothing. Um, do you think that Spurs are at the point now in our in our club development that that not quali- not qualifying for Europe um, would it was massively impact us as 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 on a financial level as well as on a, a sort of as as well as a level sort of we feel that we are attached to Europe. Do you think it will be affect us in in a way in a way that ways it may, might not affect other clubs such as Arsenal who have been in the, in the in low in in, in lower European condition, competitions and Man United and Chelsea who still have a sort of massive financial advantage over us. Do you think it might do you think it might uh, harm our financial abilities and and how how would it make the the fans feel? I think. It's one of the things that we discuss in the book in the concluding chapters. And I mean, again, Alex is somebody who's been involved in the business and commercial side of football for quite a long time. So, And he's known people at both Arsenal and Spurs at a very senior level. And it's quite place, quite well placed to comment on that. But one of the things we say is that, that you know, yes, there is some pressure on Spurs now because we've got this fantastic new stadium. Um, I'm not sure we're going to be at a financial disadvantage uh, to to anybody apart from Liverpool and Manchester United, whose kind of global commercial presence is so far ahead of everybody else in this country, I'm not sure that gap will ever be closed. And that, that you know, that's not great to hear, but it's a fact. Um, but I, I think there is an issue that, you know, the form's not great at the moment, we have to admit. And I think a lot of fans have started saying, not just, you know, are we not going to get top four in Champions League, but possibly we, we might not get any European competition at all. And I think the club do have a problem with next year because they've got this spanking new stadium uh the tickets are some of the most expensive in europe and some of that is built on the fact that people are going to see european football at that stadium uh and we'll have to see you know if we don't qualify and let's hope that we turn it around and we do get into into one of the european competitions and you know preferably the champions league um that you know let's hope we don't have to think about that but i I think that there there is some pressure on the club to finish top four and i think that if they don't finish top four then commercially that is going to be a bit of a blow i don't believe the club wouldn't have built that in because they're quite savvy business people uh and again that's been the argument have they been sort of too clever on the business side but maybe not as clever or as ambitious as they should have been on the football side and it's it's a valid conversation and discussion to have but i i think there is pressure on us yet and i think it will have an effect um, you know, we'll just have to see, will they be able to fill the stadium up if we're, you know, for, for all the games if we're not in Europe next year? But that, that stadium is built for, for European games, isn't it? I think part of the problem is as well that, you know, look, there's only four teams that can qualify. And at the moment, there are six teams that have got a realistic chance of wanting to qualify. And you could say their commercial model is built on qualifying. So every season, two of those teams are going to miss out, aren't they? Because there's only four places in the Champions League. So again, um, uh, you also get to the point of, you know, I, I would love to see Spurs win everything for ages, but I remember talking years ago in the first stage when Mourinho was at Chelsea to some old mates of mine who supported Chelsea, and they said that, you know, we loved it, but it got a bit boring because you turned up at Stamford Bridge and you knew that we weren't going to lose uh, because we were so dominant at home. And, you know, you, you need that element of, of uncertainty to make football attractive, don't you? That's what sport is. You don't know who's going to win. I think I, I, I could do as a Spurs fan with, with a little bit of, of going up and, and just feeling bored that we're going to win. I think, I think lots of Spurs fans could do with that. I think we could all deal with it for a little while, yeah. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> so, so you talked about the, um, the progression of the club and, and you mentioned the stadium as well. Um, 
as well as part of the development of our club from from sort of being i mean from, from the lows of, of relegation to where we are now there's been a massive noticeable difference at the stadium do you think that in, in terms of atmosphere when you, when you go to games is there do you think that the difference between stadiums between the, the between old white lane and, and the current white lane is is sort of um, one of of nostalgia and people thought people sort of think that the last stadium is is much better than than the current one yeah, I think look, I I I love that old stadium, and I've still got a picture of the old shelf, which is where I I grew up watching Spurs in in the late seventies and early eighties on the on the, the head of my Twitter feed as well. Um, and I I was incredibly sad when we had our last game in there. I was very emotional, I think like everybody else in that last game against Manchester United. And I think like most Spurs fans, um, I was a bit worried. You know, are we are we going to build? A, a kind of modern kind of glass and steel stadium that's got no character and it's just going to be like another one of these. It's just somewhere else to watch a sport. Uh, and I actually think that credit to the club, they've got it right. Um, I think that it is a fantastic stadium. I think the facilities are great. And and why shouldn't they be? If you're going to go and, you know, go along to a game, then, um, you know, why not you know, be able to get into the toilet and be able to get served a pint and get some decent food. But I think the atmosphere in there on, on, uh, on, its, on its night or on its day, um, is absolutely fantastic. You know, that game against Man City, the quarterfinal, um, the atmosphere was absolutely incredible. We've had that since. And I think you touched on it uh, when you asked the question. There's a bit of there's a bit of mythology built up about the, about White Hart Lane because people are saying, now, you know, the atmosphere every week was fantastic. It was always rocking. Well, sometimes it was. And the time, you know, the, the particular time I think most of us remember from modern times is the Bale game, the Taxi from Micon game as well. And the roof was coming off that stadium. And that was, everybody loved that ground because it was a proper old-fashioned English football ground with the, the fans close to the pitch or whatever. Um, but people used to moan back in the day as well and say, you know, there were games when the atmosphere wasn't good, you know, 12.30 kickoff against Burnley on a Saturday or something like that. And people would say nobody was up for it. The atmosphere was rubbish. Uh, and and suddenly what we're hearing now, because there's kind of mixed feelings, and I think because the team, the, the, the form of the team on the pitch has gone down a little bit, um, there's this kind of nostalgia being built up, this kind of rose-tinted view that every week at White Hart Lane, the, the crowd was absolutely fantastic. And it wasn't. And, you know, there are issues with this stadium as well, which is probably a whole nother podcast and a whole nother conversation. But it, the atmosphere can be absolutely fantastic. You know, in the first half against Bayern, it was really, really good. And you have the argument about, you know, to an extent... The, the crowd feeds off what's happening on the pitch and also the team feeds off what's happening on the crowd, you know, and you get into a bit of a chicken and egg argument. But, uh, you know, if they, they, they do tend to feed off each other. If you've got a really flat game, you'll tend to find the crowd being uh, fairly flat as well. But I mean, look, I, I'm, I'm always going to miss White Hart Lane. It was a fantastic place to watch football. And I mean, I, I grew up and made lifelong friends there. And so for somebody of my age, that 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 is that, that's always going to be my favourite place that I watch Spurs. But... I, 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 I'm surprisingly in love with this new stadium. I think it is a great place to watch football uh, with great facilities, and I think the atmosphere can be absolutely fantastic. And that, that you know, that game against City, that the hairs on the back of my neck were standing on end because the atmosphere was just unbelievable. Why, why in general, do, though, do you think that atmospheres in in Premier League stadiums compared to, let's say, Bundesliga or maybe even lower league, uh, lower league stadiums, is there's 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 a noticeable difference? I think that some some people. Some people say it's worse. Some people say it's better in, in big games, as you say. Um, but why is why, why do you think that there there is there is that that differentiation and and uh, di- difference in in um, in supporting styles and, and atmospheres in, in in different types of stadiums? I, I think there are several things. I think that um, I, I think 
over the time that I've been going to football, it's become less casual. And I'm not talking about, you know, wedge haircuts and diamond sort of Pringle jumpers and things. That, that It used to be that you would turn up fairly near kickoff, buy a ticket on the gate. Uh, you could go in. There were terraces. You could move around a little bit. It was all fairly fluid. The singers could congregate together. People who kind of didn't want to jump around a bit would go to another part of the ground. And that was it. And there was that kind of movement. And I think, uh, you know, over the past 20 years, as football has become more regimented and it's been seated and you go to a particular place, I think that has changed the atmosphere. That's not to say that I don't believe that um, if you're in a seat, you can't get up and make some noise because I used to sit in the uh, in the Park Lane Upper in, at White Hart Lane. And uh, we didn't used to stand for most of the game, but we used to stand for a fair bit of it, certainly when the exciting stuff was going on. But it was pretty noisy up there as well. Um, so we did that. But I, I think that 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 kind of dropping away of, if you like, casual culture has affected um, the atmosphere in stadiums as well. And I think that's potentially why you get a bit more atmosphere sometimes in lower league stadiums, because there is still that kind of, you know, you're not as locked into, you know, having to have a season ticket or being a member or whatever. You've got that kind of casual support that comes in. Um, so I, I think that's that's part of it. I think part of it is the fact that, you know, it is very expensive to go and see football. And I think that human nature is that the more you pay for something, the more you feel entitled to. And I think the game's made a little bit of a rod for its own back there because people are saying, I'm paying top dollar. I, I want almost guaranteed success, you know. I mean, I think one of the daftest arguments that's used, and I can understand where it comes from, is when the team's been rubbish, people say, you know, I should get a refund. It's like, well, you don't go to see a win. You don't go to see a good. What we do is you go and see 90 minutes of football. That's what you pay for. Uh, and again, you know, if you were if you were paying to, you know, to, for a guaranteed win, would would you go along? Would it be as exciting? And as you say, you know, it might be for a little while. So, but I also think the when you talk about the German fan culture, again, it's it's the, the comparisons often made because I think probably the German supporter culture and 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 British supporter culture and particularly English supporter culture is probably more similar than, than any other countries in, in Europe you know the German fans travel in numbers to away games there is a distinctive fan culture they travel abroad as well um, and there's maybe not that culture quite on the same level in, in other countries but the, the Germans are incredibly organized about this as well and you know there'll be loads of jokes about that as well but remember the criticism when Dortmund came to White Hart Lane for the first time when I had all the flags and whatever and people are saying well why can't we do that and there's a pretty simple reason because our fans don't want to be that organized and you can imagine that, you know, what the Germans have, if you look at like the yellow wall at Dortmund, there's three or four guys on little platforms in the front of that with megaphones and they're directing the crowd. Now, if that happened at any English football ground, people would say, F off, don't tell me what to do. Uh, and so there's that more kind of, you know, it's not quite as organised a support culture as well. So, and I think there are, you know, again, it's cheaper in Germany and there's there's a whole kind of different way that their football authorities see football and their relationship with the fans. But I think sometimes... The comparison between the English and German culture isn't quite as, as direct as people think. But, you know, there's, there's a lot of reasons why the atmosphere maybe isn't what it was. But I don't particularly buy into the idea that, um, that, that you know, that the passion isn't there. That if you look at Premier League grounds, despite the massive increase in ticket prices and all the changes that have gone on and the change in demographic, most of the stadiums are over 98% full every week. Um, you know, it's it's there's a passionate interplay between the home fans and the away fans. And I think the authorities and the TV recognise that that's part of the spectacle that they put on as well. And I think, you know, you do see a lot of examples of people getting behind their team as well at, at, at most grounds in the Premier League, certainly. And then if you go through, you know, the divisions as well, there are there are pockets of like incredibly intense support. So I think if people want to do it, they will do it. And sometimes maybe we look for excuses, you know, maybe why we haven't. 
Do, do you think that there's any chance of, let's say, an, an ultras uh, group developing, like like in Crystal Palace have have now? Do you think that there's any chance of us in an ultras group developing at Tottenham? Um, well, there's been bits and pieces. I mean, the 1882 movement were probably the closest that, that we had to that associated with the, the Fighting Cop podcast. And I mean, they got, they got a bit criticised for being hipsters, didn't they, after a while as well. But they, they did some really good stuff where they tried to get people to gather and support the team at uh, some of the kind of less well-attended games as well. I remember going to a reserve game, a Tottenham Arsenal game at Barnet. And I mean, I think there was about 2,000 that they, they turned out for that. And it, it, was, a, it was a fantastic atmosphere. Um, but I think... Uh, you know the, the Holmesdale Ultras. Uh, you, know, you know they divide opinion. They divide opinion among Palace fans as well. There's some Palace fans I know say, "Oh, they, they think that they can tell us how to support a team, but you know we want to support it in a different way." Other people say it's it's really good. I know a lot of our fans take the mick out of it as well. It's just a bunch of middle-aged men sort of playing at being ultras. But uh, so I think it, every club develops its own culture, doesn't it? And I think what you know Liverpool fans have flags on the cop. Um, we I think Spurs fans sing. I think we're loud. They like that. That's what we do, uh, and it's a it's a much more informal thing. I think the ultras culture is, and you know, it's not to be it's not to be nationalistic or to rate it, but I don't think it's particularly uh, a British or an English thing. I think it's something that happened in in continental Europe, and they they took some influence from uh, English football fan culture in the seventies and eighties, but they made it their own. So that whole idea of ultras, I don't think really is a particularly it's it's not natural to the football culture in this country. I think that we we did things in a slightly different way. But I know again, you know, it, it's it, some of it is a generational thing. A lot of the younger fans are much more interested in their culture, and I can remember, you know, the excitement when we used to watch Italian football, um, you know, when it was first being broadcast in 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 England, and you'd see what was happening sort of in the stands and go, well, you know, we we, we, we mind some of that as well. So it, it it might change over the next few years. At the moment, I don't think it's something that's particularly embedded in the culture of English football fans. So, I, I, so people are going to disagree with that. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I sort of stand in the middle. I, I, I sort of, I think that they, it'd be great if there was, but I, I'm not sure if it actually will happen in real life. Um, to move I on to your worry about being organised. Yeah, I think, I think that's what we've got, and it's almost that there, there's a bit of a kind of uh, a, a sort of a British sort of attitude of like if I'm if somebody tells me what to do, I'm just not going to do it on the point of principle, <laughs> which can be quite good sometimes, but it can also be you know not so good. Mm-hmm. Um, I think to, to move on to your role as the uh, co-chair of the Tottenham Hotspur Supporters Trust, um, very notably in before the Champions League final, there was a, a campaign of, of um, between the Tottenham Hotspur Supporters Trust and the spirit of Shankly um, to to unite, and, and there was also the, there was there was Liverpool and so Chelsea and Arsenal uh, supporters groups who combined to uh, try and uh, try and change. Uh, ticket prices and a whole host of other uh, factors. Do you think that fan mobilisation and, and, and fans uniting across uh, rivalry lines, across lines of, of, of countries, countries' rivalries, do you think that that could be maybe sometimes more effective than, let's say, UEFA or, or the Premier League or the FA? Uh, I think it has to happen because I think... Uh... I, th- I think what what the authorities have done for quite a long time is that they've used the the division between fans in order to you know make sure that they get their own way and drive a lot of things through. So I, I think it's a balancing act that I don't think people want to hear that you know what we need is you know big peace, love, and understanding, a big loving, and everybody sort of likes each other because there's always going to be an edge. Certainly between Tottenham and Arsenal, Tottenham, Chelsea, and West Ham, maybe between Liverpool and Man United, there's always going to be that edge there. Uh, and it, it depends how far you take it. And I think most people would see where the line was. But there's been a lot more joint campaigning that's gone on 
um, in, in, in probably in the past five years than it has been for a long time. Now, obviously, the big achievement of that was the £30 away price cap um, you know, on, on away tickets in the Premier League as well. And I think that what supporter groups are starting to see now is that there are particular issues that do affect all of us, uh, whether that's like TV moving kickoff times, um, you know, what's happening with VAR at the moment. I mean, the, the, the Premier League reps and, and my co-chair, Kat, uh, was was one of the people in the meeting with the Premier League yesterday talking about VAR uh, and and the, the fan reps at that meeting put it very strongly to the Premier League that it was totally unacceptable that the people who were paying the money to watch the game inside the stadium were not being kept informed of what those decisions were. You know, it's not there's no audio commentary, there's nothing coming up on the big screens that all the grounds have got now as well. Um, but you know, we we campaign on things like that. We campaign on things like you know treatment at away games, and that was the thing that you mentioned the the the, the initiative between the four supporter groups over the two European finals. And I think you know anybody who's been to a European away game knows that the reality of going to those games isn't quite as as glitzy as UEFA would like us to believe. So I think a lot of it is just based on we'll say that you know if we want to be treated in a certain way, if we go to somebody else's ground, uh, then we've got to make sure that those fans are treated in a decent way. When they come to our ground, and it doesn't mean not take, you know, not having any rivalry, but it just means that recognise what the common interest is. And I think it's starting to come together a bit. But you know, by definition, people who are involved in kind of football support or activism, if you want to call it that way, we, we are a bit of a minority because, and I sometimes think, you know, I probably need my head examined because I, I go to football because it isn't work; it's a, it's a leisure activity. Um, but but what all of us have done that are involved in this is is actually kind of make it into work a little bit. But when you can achieve things like, you know, getting better treatment for fans or getting a reduction in prices or getting some kind of improvement, then, you know, it does make it worth it. And I think you're either the sort of person who thinks you can make a difference or or you're not. The, the, the big thing we have to combat is that people thinking that, uh, that, that we think that we're better than them or we're speaking for everybody because we're in an organisation. We're just trying to make sure that fans have got a voice. And one of the, part of the problem with, with being involved in it is that, that there are probably about as many different opinions as there are fans at every club, aren't there? You'll you'll find this doing the pod, won't you, as well? Mm-hmm. Uh, do Do you think though that um that the the, the financialization and, and corporatization of of big clubs like Tottenham leads to sort of uh, less interest in fans and fans problems? Uh, I, I think it can do. I mean, look, I, I think the bar's very low, uh, and I'll get criticised by the people that say that you know the trust is too close to the club. Um, but I actually think that we have a better conversation with our club than quite a lot of fans do. The Spirit of Shankly at Liverpool is a very, very organised group. Uh, um, but they, they, they don't have the same level of conversation with the club um, that we do. There's, there's an issue there. There's a little bit of a myth that kind of everybody is part of this big kind of collective in Liverpool. But there's, there's differences between that supporter group and the board of the club as well. So, And we have to, we have to balance it, don't we? Because in, in, in the end, we're supporters and we want our clubs to do well. So we don't want to bash them all the time. Uh, and if we do criticise them, we've been hammered for, you know, being like, you know, you're anti the club. You know, why have you criticised them for doing, you know, this, this, this and this? Uh, and then other times if we, if we, you know, we don't criticise them enough, then it's like, you know, you're too soft on them. Most people seem to think we get it about right. Um, and I think, you know, the corporatisation is is a big issue. But I think that the, if you're going to be honest about it from me, giving you a personal view, uh, I think that too much of the game is about money. I think that it's too expensive for most people to go to. Uh, and I think a lot of us spend far too much of our disposable income on football. Uh, and I think that that's caused a lot of problems. I think it's caused a lot of people to say, you know, I'm paying all this, so therefore I want some kind of guaranteed return on it as well. Um, I also think that, you know, the game has changed and we have to we have to deal with it as it is now and not like it wants to be, which is horribly pragmatic. But, uh, you know, so we, we what we try and do is try and, you know, 
take the rough edges off, if you like, tone down the worst excesses. Um, but, you know, the, the, the thing that we, we never thought that we would succeed in doing, and, and we were told at meetings by senior football people, this will never happen, is achieving the price cap on away tickets. And I think the principle of the price cap has now been established. And I think we, you know, that that the, the issue of ticket pricing, especially with the amount of TV money that's coming into the game, it is going to keep being revisited because I think people see that things have gone a little bit too far. You know, pricing's gone up. I think our ticket prices since the early 80s have gone up something like 1,100%. Uh, so I worked it out the other day that a pint of milk in 1981, when I went and saw Ricky Villa score that great goal at the FA Cup final, it was 20 pence. And if a pint of milk had gone up by the same as a season ticket at Spurs since then, it cost you £2.56 to get a pint of milk now. And I think if people were paying £2.56 for a pint of milk, they'd be pretty pissed off, wouldn't they? <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a different perspective on it, I guess. I two pints of milk. Um, I think sometimes, yeah, the, the work, the work. <laughs> I think sometimes the, the work of the trust does go unrecognised, and I think it's important that we do um, say thanks as as as, as from from fans yeah, of thank you. what you do. Thank you. I mean, it's, I mean, I think like to stuff like stuff like 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 fans' problems for, stuff for, the, for the Champions League final. I think it was important. There was a big movement from that. Um, um, but I think we're gonna. I think we'll, we, this, this has been great. I think we've been some had some. It's, it's very it's very interesting to get a perspective from an actual fan group. Um, thank you very much. We will. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much for coming on.